Right, we better start. And uh, we're very honoured today to have Robert Pippin to speak to us. As I just said to him, he's got too many titles and books to read them all out. Uh, but he is a distinguished professor at the University of Chicago and known to many of us as an authority on German idealism. And today he's going to talk about the significance of self-consciousness in idealist theories of logic. Thank you very much. Thank you all for, for coming. Um, the book I'm writing a book about is uh, one of the, the two most worked over and actually supervised for publication books Hegel wrote in his lifetime. didn't write very many. We have a lot of lectures and we have some components of lectures that he supervised for publication, but only somewhat informally, like the philosophy of right, which is part of his philosophy of objective spirit. Uh, the book I'm writing about, he wrote between 1812 and 1816 when he was teaching high school students in Nuremberg. It's called The Science of Logic. Uh, sometimes, unfortunately for the students, he actually taught it to them, as uh, <laughs> teachers and professors don't want to do. He wanted to maximize his research time, so it just babbled away in front of them. Um, it is not, I would say, the book that Hegel's ultimate legacy in philosophy will depend on. There has been virtually no reception of it in the philosophical literature, even in the philosophical literature that descends from Hegel, whether in terms of so-called left Hegelianism or uh, so-called right or theological uh, Hegelianism. There's no standard commentary on the work, much less a dispute among commentaries about the basic idea of the work. It's simply written in a language that we have lost the capacity to translate very easily, and so reading it requires uh, a serious preparation in Hegel's earlier work, and it doesn't lend itself to, without simplification or anachronism, without uh, doing some violence to it, the easy summary. So I'm going, to, I'm going to concentrate on one theme I think is the most essential and make use of a philosopher's characterization of some general aspects of German idealism that I think help make sense of the book. Sebastian Rudel, the Leipzig, Leipzig philosopher, uh, current contemporary Leipzig philosopher, Sebastian Rudel, has rightly identified as the heart of German idealism the principle that self-consciousness, freedom, and reason are one. The fact that this formulation requires abstractions of this magnitude and that the formulation is an identification of concepts that seem quite different, not identical, is not accidental in this tradition. Arguably the most ambitious and most difficult single book in that post-Kantian idealist tradition is Hegel's three-part, two-volume science of logic, arguably because there are many other worthy contenders for the most difficult title. I propose to bring to bear Rudel's theory of self-consciousness on that book in a way that will demonstrate that what he identifies as the heart of German idealism is certainly right. I'm quite sure that the uses to which I'll put his theory in discussing the logic are at the end of the day not recognizably his, but his account opens up a way of discussing the importance of the topic of self-consciousness for what both Kant and the post-Kantians called logic. This is, of course, uh, not a sane proposal. Difficult does not begin to describe the science of logic, but I'll use Riddle's thesis as a focus for a reasonably manageable topic, the significance of self-consciousness for the general enterprise of the book, as it understands a logic. Hegel's book can be said to stand in a tradition of philosophical logic that includes Kant's transcendental logic, Fichte's Wissenschaftslehre, Frege's Begriffsschrift, Wittgenstein's Tractatus, and Husserl's logical investigations. Actually, that tradition could simply be called philosophy, given the importance of the Logos to Parmenides and works like Plato's Sophist and Aristotle's De Interpretatione. But the key to understanding his approach concerns two key innovations in Kant's theory of logic, and I should mention them at the outset. The first is that Kant does not understand logic as rules for well-formed formulae and rules for truth-preserving inferences. His theory of logic is like all theories, basically, before Frege, a theory of thinking. His logic is a judgmental and not a propositional logic. But it is not, as in the 17th century Port Royal logic, a theory of the rules for thinking, either descriptively or prescriptively, neither rules for how we think and make inferences nor rules for how we should. For Kant, logic sets out the rules that constitute thinking as such, and so its scope is far wider than, say, Frege's, since it covers more than truth-bearers. It covers imperatives and aesthetic judgments, which have only subjective universal validity. That's why, as many of you know, in the three critiques, Kant tries very hard to keep the architectonic structure of each of the critiques uh, coherent, consistent with the table of categories in the first critique. They're all covered by the same logic. 
So contrary to Port Royal, not following those rules is not thinking poorly or thinking irrationally. It's not thinking at all. And Kant relies on a key thesis from his critical philosophy in defining the scope of such a logic. It is absolutely unrestricted. Logic has no content, and so is not simply transparent to the ontological structure of reality at its highest level of universality, as in the post-Aristotelian and Leibnizian Wolfian accounts of logic. That thesis is that thinking is exclusively discursive, can provide itself with no content, and can have content only by means of sensible experience. Hegel will accept Kant's view about the constitutive status of logic and that it is a theory of thinking, but will reject this premise from Kant's transcendental philosophy, and we'll return to this point in what follows. But Kant's other innovation was to insist that the I think must be able to accompany all my representations. All my judgments, judging, believing, acting, are inherently and necessarily self-conscious. That's the notion I want to explore. There's no question that that notion is extremely important to Hegel's logic, which could be fairly be said to be about everywhere in one way or another the problem Hegel calls the unity of a concept. This is clear from a single famous passage at which that phrase occurs. Here it is. It is one of the profoundest and truest insights to be found in the critique of reason that the unity which constitutes the essence of the concept is recognized as the original synthetic unity of apperception, the unity of the I think or of self-consciousness. This proposition is all that there is to the so-called transcendental deduction of the categories, which from the beginning has, however, been regarded as the most difficult piece of Kantian philosophy. Roughly, the thought behind such remarks is this. What Kant called the original synthetic unity of apperception is what Hegel calls the essence of the unity of the concept. This could be understood initially in a formal sense. Both unities are classic cases of one over many. Even an empirical concept like red remains identifiable as the same concept, red, the same color, in all the many and various instances and shades in which it appears. Analogously, the manifold of experience counts as a unity among such a manifold in all being ascribable to one I, that identical self-same I who has all such experiences. But both Hegel and Kant do not want to merely point out a structural analogy. The unity of apperception is the unity of a concept. That is, as Kant makes clear, to say that experience is always subject to the original synthetic unity of apperception is to say that it's always subject to the understanding, the power of conceiving, which is such a power only insofar as I know I'm exercising it. So this is the power to hold things together as one, necessary for experience to have a unity ascribable to an identical I. Discriminating what belongs together with what, what is connected to what in a temporal order, knowing that the successive perceptions of a house do not count as a perception of a succession in the world, requires an apperceptive unification. It does not just happen to consciousness. What happens is mere succession. Such a unity is possible only self-consciously, and it is the actualization of the power of conceiving. But the unity affected by the power of conceiving, where conceiving means conceiving, not merely thinking together, is the representational unity that makes reference to an object possible. Unifying by red achieves the unity that says how things are. It, the rose, belongs with the red things, not with what has seemed red-like to me before. Without this ability to distinguish how things are from how they seem to me, there would be as many eyes as arbitrarily associated seemings and no unity of self-consciousness. Or achieving the unity of self-consciousness is differentiating seeming from being. And so the rules for that distinction, categories, are constitutive of such unity. And the way Kant puts it, the conditions of the possibility of experience are at the same time the conditions of the possibility of objects of experience. Kant proposed an argument to show that any unity that could be said to be the product of affection alone, like an associative unity, must presuppose what he called a transcendental affinity, that is, a power to distinguish a mere succession of representations from a representation of objective succession. Without that power, there could be no one over many, no manifold belonging to one eye, one experiencer. Hegel does not rely on the subjective form of inner sense like this and argued as above that if we understand correctly that the unity of any concept is the unity of apperception and that such a unity is what establishes a possible relation to an object, then the categories as the moments of any such possible unifying power will thereby be shown to be actual, to make possible representation of objects or a rigorous, what Kant called metaphysical deduction, properly conceived, is the only deduction we need. With this brief background, the first task is to give some general overview of what the science of logic is about, more or less, 
This will lead naturally into Rudel's account of self-consciousness, and then I'll draw to tr try to draw out some implications of this sort of focus for the structure and movement of the book. Although Hegel devotes surprisingly little space to any discussion of what he is doing in the book, in effect he just does it, the ambition of the treatise as a logic appears to concern the very possibility of rendering anything intelligible, sense-making, where that could mean a number of things, offering a satisfying explanation, giving an account as in the ancient sense, don logon didonai, or justifying a deed. What is in question at such a level of attempted comprehensiveness in the science of logic appears to be something like an account of all possible account givings, a scope that would include everything from ethical justifications to empirical judgments to the concept of explanation presupposed by the second law of thermodynamics. This signals his acceptance of Kant's first innovation, that logic concerns the very possibility of thinking broadly construed. The most ambitious goal of Hegel's logic is to show that the variety of accounts is finite and that not only are there these forms of account giving which aren't incommensurable with each other, but in some way they're interdependent. Thinking, of course, on this account following Kant is not a perceiving or a grasping, although a perceiving or grasping can be the ground of having understood something or the ground of claiming something to be the case. The thinking that Kant and Hegel are most interested in is aimed at getting something in some sense right, paradigmatically in a knowing. Of course, what it is to get something right, holding to be appropriately so, rendering successfully intelligible, is also one of the contents we want to get right. This creates a self-reflective paradox of what Hegel in the last book calls the logic of the concept, or the concept of the concept. This will clearly require, at some level, a theory of conceptuality, the heart of the determinate generality presumed in account giving, formulated in whatever way one likes, judging, explaining, understanding, in an assumption Hegel shares with Kant, any such account giving or rendering intelligible is always necessarily discursive. Any determinate concept is itself some sort of result of a determination involving other concepts. So, in the logic, a bewildering array of concepts or concept kinds, being, nothing, becoming, something, other, finitude, infinitude, the one, the many, continuity, discrete magnitude, number, measure, essence, appearance, identity, difference, contradiction, ground, relation, concept, judgment, syllogism, life, even the idea of the true and the idea of the good, and many others, make appearances like characters in some fast-paced drama, struggle to make a, ca a case for themselves as if trying to say what they are, only to fail in some unusual way, and to give way to putatively more successful successors, which themselves give way in turn. It's clear enough that the central problem seems to be how to account for the determinacy of these basic rules for possible sense-making, or the right account of their conceptual content. In the encyclopedia logic, knowing in the general sense of intending intelligible content is said to be, quote, determining and determinate thinking, unquote. Well, this is just a first pass at familiarizing ourselves with the topic. It will recur in different forms constantly throughout. Summarized way too crudely, these kinds of determinacy are sometimes expressed in three different logics in basic assertion types, misleading because there are many other kinds of judgments than assertoric, and there are many more presuppositions and implications of this way of formulating the issue. But set in terms of predicative form, Hegel wants to argue for the indispensability, irreducibility, and the interrelatedness in the three books of the logic of the forms A is F, A is necessarily or essentially F, and A is a good F. Various higher order concepts are said to be presupposed in such possible determinations, ranging from finitude to essence and law to universality, life and the idea of the good. None of these can be understood to be de derived empirically. The idea is clearly that they can be shown to be presupposed in any empirical de de determination in different ways in the different logical contexts. And their content is a matter of both internal self-related moments in the way Hegel speaks and external dependence on relations to contrary or otherwise negative moments. For Hegel, as for many others, the content of a true assertion is what is the case. And so these constitutive moments of any, any possible intelligible assertion are the forms of reality. This marks his break with Kant. Any assertable claim of various sorts must be an expression of such conceptual specifications of possible intelligibility. And these intelligibility conditions constitute the possibility of intelligible bearers of truth, judgment. The forms of intelligibility are the forms of what could be true and so of what possibly is, although they do not settle the question of what in particular is true. 
What we want to know is both something about the material relations of exclusion necessary to differentiate and render contentful these higher order concepts. This is the famous topic of dialectical negation. And why there should be some inherent problem, some unavoidable inconsistency or antinomy under the specific assumptions of each logic in specifying those internal and external relations. I should say here that something immediately follows by taking seriously that Hegel's major text is a logic. He says that his logic is going to take the place of and coincides with metaphysics, but he doesn't say that the subject matter of metaphysics is of a special sort that requires a distinct logic. He says that logic is metaphysics, or is now, after Kant, metaphysics. He's often taken to mean, in his systematic account of the totality of everything, to be committed to a kind of absolutization of the principle of sufficient reason. Everything happens for its reason. And that's often taken to commit him, I mean, in fact, almost universally, by traditional Hegel commentators, taking him to mean that, for example, the principle of the sufficient reason of this table must be the sufficient reason it exists, why it's here, why it's not not here. But Hegel's metaphysics is logic. The principle of sufficient reason for him doesn't, doesn't refer to a principle of its necessary existence. A principle of sufficient reason is a sufficient reason for it being the determinate thing it is, its principle of intelligibility. Why it is a table and nothing else, what it is for it to be a table and nothing else. So the totality of the principle of the sufficient reason is true, but the question he's interested in is the principle of its intelligibility, why it is determinately this one thing and what the principle of unity is. This has to do with his deep connection with Aristotle, which I'll say something about in a moment. Here is a summary claim by Hegel that begins to make clear, given all of this, the bearing of Rudel's issue on this topic. As science, truth is pure self-consciousness as it develops itself and has the shape of a self, so that that which exists in and for itself is the known concept, and the concept as such is that which exists in and for itself. Well, this is a strange and complicated identity. First, science developing self-consciousness in the shape of a self and truth all form one identity, all of which is supposed to allow us to conclude a second identity being in and for itself and the known concept. In the first edition of the logic, he simply says that the truth of being, the determination of what things truly are, is self-consciousness or the form of self-conscious judgments. Now, this claim on what there is being their concept, again, has to be read through the lens of a logic. What things are is their concept. That doesn't mean Hegel thinks that all that exists are really concepts, as if he's some kind of medieval concept uh, realist. Again, his model is Aristotle, for whom the center of metaphysics was the principle of substantial form. The sufficient reason for saying that the thing is what it is is reference to its substantial form. The thing is its form. What it really is, is its form. The form isn't responsible for it popping into existence. It's the principle by which it's delineated as exactly the kind of thing it is. And that's the kind of interest uh, Hegel has. And given the critique of Plato, that doesn't mean that the form of a thing is a separate eidetic thing. It's not a thing at all, but it's the distinct way of being that the thing is. The best example that Hegel gives, that Aristotle gives, is from the third book of the Dianema, how we are supposed to think of this. And Aristotle presents us with an analogy. He says, if body, that is to say matter, were to be considered the eye, the ocular orb, then its soul, that is to say its form, would be seeing the distinct being at work of the eye, the what it was to be, the totiana and I, the essence, would be seeing. That notion of the principle of its intelligibility being the principle of its modality of being, how it is the thing it is, is what Hegel means by saying being in and for itself is the concept. The vast disagreements between Kant and Hegel are well known, especially about such issues as idealism and the thing in itself. But there is a deeper agreement than disagreement between Kant and Hegel on the logic of possible thinking when one notes how much of what Kant wants to distinguish as general logic already relies, in his own words, on his transcendental theory, his epistemology. And that has to mean on the transcendental determination of possible content. To mention the point on which the heart of the theoretical issue between Kant and Hegel turns, in their critique, Kant writes, and thus the synthetic unity of apperception is the highest point to which one must affix all uses of the understanding, even the whole of logic, and after it, transcendental philosophy. Indeed, this faculty is the understanding itself, 
and this is tied to an even more general point. I find that a judgment is nothing other than the way of, being, of bringing, giving cognition to the objective unity of apperception. That is the aim of the copula is in them, to distinguish the objective unity of representations from the subjective. For this word designates the relation of the representations to the original apperception and its necessary unity, even if the judgment itself is empirical, hence contingent. For example, bodies are heavy. By that, to be sure, I do not mean to say that these representations necessarily belong to one another in the empirical intuition, but rather they belong to one another in virtue of the necessary unity of apperception in the synthesis of intuitions, that is, in accordance with the principles of the objective determination of all representations, insofar as cognition can come from them, which principles are all derived from the principle of the transcendental unity of apperception. This is a new theory of judgment. Actually, Kant knew in 1762 already that he had a new theory of judgment by insisting on this self-conscious dimension of judgment. He repeats it again, noticing its originality in section 19 of the critique, and accordingly grounds a new understanding of logic, especially the logic of concepts and judgment. Such an interpretive claim makes clear that somewhat contrary to Kant's own presentation, general logic is an abstraction from a more original and basic theory, in Kant's language, a transcendental theory of the possible conceptual determinations of an object, the logic that coincides with metaphysics in Hegel's account, and not some basic empty form to which content is added. It also entails that what we have to call Kant's theory of thinking or account giving or judging has a component that's not something supplemental to the basic features of his general or contentless logic as rules for valid judgings and inferrings. It is rather the basic feature. Judging, judging is apperceptive. This is a logical truth, a truth in and of general logic, as the B134 passage insisted. It has to be to be a judgment. And that has to mean, in a very peculiar sense, important to Hegel, but that will take some time to unpack, that such judgings are necessarily and inherently reflexive and so at the very least are self-referential, even if such a reflected content is not substantive, does not refer to a subject's focusing on her judging activity as if a second consciousness of the event of thinking. That is, the judge is not only to be aware of what one is judging, but that one is judging or linguistically asserting or claiming something. If it were not apperceptive like this, it would be indistinguishable from the differential responsiveness of a thermometer and thermometers cannot defend their claims, their readings, aren't committed to anything. But one is not or cannot be simultaneously judging that one is judging, rather ju on pain of the obvious regress. Rather, judgment somehow is the consciousness of judging. These are not two acts, but one. As Rudel puts it, quote, the spontaneity of thought is of a very special kind. It is a spontaneity whose acts our knowledge of these very acts. Again, we should note that in this tradition, propositional structure considered on its own represents nothing because it claims nothing. Kant was well aware that with this notion of apperceptive judging, he was breaking with the rationalist and Lockean notion of reflection as inner perception. And as we shall see, Hegel's language is everywhere carefully Kantian in this respect. Since self-consciousness is the form of all possible knowledge and action, a great deal will hang on what we should call the appropriate logic of this self-relation, where we mean not what we intend when we turn our attention to ourselves, but in what relation to ourselves when we are whenever we claim something or whenever we act. It is, however, extremely difficult to formulate this point properly. Rudel says they're not two acts, but one. I know what I believe, and I know of my beliefs by being the believer, by being identical with one who believes. So when I say, I know of my believing by being the believer, that doesn't mean I have a method for finding out whether I'm believing. It means I don't need a method. In believing, I am aware of being the believer. If it weren't that, I wouldn't be believing. I would be vocalizing in response to some stimuli, whatever. But the grammar of the formulation that I quoted has to say something like acts of theoretical knowledge are also, besides being knowledge of some state of affairs, knowledge of these very acts. That's a quote from Rudel. Even his formulation, judgment is, is identical with, is the same thing as the consciousness of judgment, introduces the language of consciousness and object into the apperceptive dimension in a way that can be confusing. 
In knowing that the book is read, if I say that I know something about the book and something about my acts of knowledge, that I know it, why are there not two acts? There certainly can be contexts in which my assertion itself could be the object of an intentional attitude. In response, say, to someone asking, just think about what you're claiming. But that is a special circumstance and a special sort of attentiveness. I cannot be a believer unless I know that I am believing, and I know that by being the believer. But besides what I believe, what exactly do I know by being the believer? I don't know that the proposition, I am a believer, is true, and I'm certainly not acquainted with a special object myself in coming to believe something. Again, that formulation, knowledge of my acts of belief, would seem to mean I also know that I have knowledge of my acts, but then we again would be off to the regresses. These same potential misapprehensions pertain to the formulation Riddle uses everywhere to analyze a, ge a genuine unity of disparate elements in consciousness. That unity is nothing but the consciousness of that unity, and the consciousness of that unity is nothing other than the unity of which it is conscious. There must be some way of saying that the self-conscious dimension of thought and action is a matter of the way a claim is made or a belief avowed or an action undertaken. To borrow the approach to many similar problems taken by Ryle, the later Ryle, they are accomplished self-consciously rather than accompanied by or even identical with another act of consciousness. There is only one act. Action, for example, is the consciousness of acting. This is, there is not an acting and also a being conscious of what one is doing. Acting is being conscious of what one is doing. So there is a self-referential component in any judgment or action. I think this. I act thusly. But it can be misleading to think that this is the same problem as, for example, how does the first-person pronoun have sense and thereby pick me uniquely out. I understand this adverbial qualification at least to be suggested by Rudel in his discussions of what he calls an unmediated way of knowing from the inside, not of some other or by inner perception. Knowing from the inside by being the knower is, quote, a way of knowing quoting Rudel, a way of knowing such that my first-person reference is constituted by a relation I bear to the object, identity, by which I know it in this way, or by the precision of his saying, when I know an object in a first-person way, I know it by being that object. The question, what exactly do I know besides what I believe by being the believer, is the same question as, how can the self-relation inherent in all cognitive relation to the world announced by Kant and in all action which self-relation certainly has the grammatical form of a dyadic relation, not be a dyadic relation, but be the expression of an identity. Since self-consciousness is the basic structural feature of knowledge and action, according to Rudel and to Hegel, the supreme necessary condition for anything being believing or acting, everything depends on the right formulation and drawing the right implications. I don't know what I'm doing by identifying myself with the one acting, but by being the one acting. So how can such a two also be one. We are in the middle of everything of significance here in Hegel's logic, not to mention Fichte's early Wissenschaftslehre and Schelling's early idealism. We are at the heart of the problem they called Identitätstheorie, identity theory. For example, in Fichte's early versions of the Wissenschaftslehre, the possibility of the eyes or the ego's identification of itself in all its experiences mirrors what he calls the division at the heart of any statement of identity, a division that is also somehow not a division as in the difference between A is A and simply A. In fact, he argues the very intelligibility of any statement of the law of identity presupposes the I's self-identity and self-differentiation. A cannot be identified as A unless the I of the first A is the I of the second A and knows it is. And since identity is the first principle of any possible intelligibility, the issue is, in the systematic sense, primordial. This, too, is important to state carefully. Hegel scholars often assume that Hegel inherits identity philosophy from Schelling and that it means the identity of subject and object. They then formulate various philosophically implausible versions of such an identity, such as that true reality is divine thought thinking itself and that objects are moments of this thought's intellectual intuition of itself. But the logic is not committed to anything remotely like this. As we'll see in more detail in a moment, in thinking of identity, Hegel is first of all thinking of self-consciousness and any conscious consciousness where the subject of knowledge is identical with itself, where there is no difference between the subject and object of its knowledge, since it knows itself. All of this, as Rudel formulates it in his own terms. And Rudel is expressing a Hegelian thought when he says that this is just not a feature of an isolated problematic, a theory of self-consciousness, 
It isn't a theory of self-consciousness in the sense we meet it in philosophy. This unusual identity is constitutive of theoretical thought as such. Theoretical thought, he says, quote, is a reality that includes its subject's knowledge of it, unquote. So a subject's knowledge, quote, that and why she believes what she does, which she expresses in giving the explanation, is not a separate existence from what it represents. It includes and is included in the reality of which it has knowledge, unquote. This has an important implication. The theoretical thought of any content cannot be understood as the momentary or punctated grasp of a solitary item. The thought of the content, content is also, is identical with, is already, is imbricated in the thought of whatever reasons there are to delimit a concept in such a way and not some other. For example, the thought of discreteness in its contrast with continuity, or the thought of essence in its contrast with appearances. We are not thinking of discreteness if we cannot think of what such a notion excludes determinately, presupposes, and requires if we have no idea of how such discrete magnitudes could form a continuum. These are, for Hegel, reasons which differentiate it from its contrary, reasons that allow success in distinguishing the content from its com complements or contraries. That the thought of the content is also the thought of my thinking, it has this implication is what the apperceptive element amounts to. So to bring all this together, judgment, here are the, the relevant controversial claims. Judgment is the consciousness of judgment, but one is conscious of judging in an unusual way by being the judger. Being the judger, believer, or thinker of anything is, as if in answer to the question, what ought to be judged, believed, or thought in this way. This means that at the highest level of abstraction, the thought, the belief, the assertion of some content like finitude or causality is at the same time the thought of the reasons that are required for such an answer. The record at such, oh, finally, thought can also investigate what is gener generally presupposed, what is required in order to judge anything, to think determinately any content. That's why the logic begins with the thought of mere being. It does not learn these from experience, does not apprehend them as ideal objects. It has to be said to give them to itself. The record of such attempts is the science of logic. Since these meta-concepts are the forms of whatever could be truly judged, and what is truly said is what is the case, they are the forms of reality. Now, I realize this introduces a lot of issues that are not directly relevant to the science of logic, but these are claims that are uh, quite controversial. I think it can be easily defended, at least I think so, with respect to the conditions for the possibility of judging or acting as such of cognitive claims and of intentional action. Uh, it's more controversial with cases of belief that I, what I, in order to be believing, I must be conscious of my believing, that is a component of what it is to be believing. And it's even more controversial of other things we're willing to call knowledge but which are not judgmental or fully cognitive. I know in some sense where my left foot right now is, but that's not apperceptively self-ascribed. Um, likewise, we like to think that people have beliefs that they don't know they have. Sometimes racial prejudice is described in this way. A person avows a belief in racial equality, but he really has a belief in racial inequality. Or we avow beliefs that we think we're committed to that we're not really committed to. Um, there's a lot to say about these. I would not call beliefs that we do not yet avow beliefs as such. I call it something like potential beliefs. We have the potential to avow a variety of things if we're asked about it. It's, it's somewhat unreasonable to think of the infinite things we could believe. We're already believing them, we just haven't avowed them. If it's a belief, in some sense, I know that I'm believing it. Same thing's true of self-deception. If I have beliefs I'm self-deceived about, the whole idea of self-deception is that I know what I'm hiding from myself, and hence that even beliefs in that context must be self-ascribable. I must know that I'm believing it. Belief is not something that just happens. Judging is not something that just happens. Judgments are not emitted. Judgments are not merely evoked. If I'm making a judgment, I'm standing behind something. And hence, the thought of the judgment is the same as the thought of the reasons on which I judge. These are not occurrent episodes in the mind. No one's saying that. 
but the conditions for it being an act of judging are that I be conscious that I'm judging, that I'm claiming something, that I'm committing myself to something. And I could only be conscious of that if I were conscious of what reasons lead me to be so committed. Herein lies another lesson. We can talk about that in the discussion. It's uh, a lot of complicated, controversial claims. There. Herein lies another lesson, though, in the difficulty of finding the right formulation. Rudel, in discussing the main features of this order, inferential relations, believing Q because I believe P and P implies Q, argues that such inferences themselves reveal that there must be a reason it is right to believe something other than because of inferences from something else one believes. This different way, he says, will reveal the order under which I bring myself in asking what to believe. It cannot be the case that this moment that defines the rightness of the whole order of inference is itself the content of a separate belief or representation. We would be heading straight for Carroll's paradoxes of Achilles and the tortoise. It must be that what it is to determine what it is right to believe because of what one else believes is itself just thereby to reveal the order under which I bring myself in asking what to believe, not to evoke another belief. And this in the same difficult to state way that judgment is the consciousness of judgment. And in just the same way that being committed to the truth of a proposition, I am just thereby committed to the denial of everything inconsistent with it. The latter is not a separate inference I draw on the basis of my first commitment. It is a dimension of the content of my first commitment. This is not to say I must be conscious of these implications and incompatibilities, just that I could not be thinking that content were I not able to be responsive to such considerations appropriately. This is also just as someone's believing anything and her thought that it is something right to believe are, as Riddle says, of the same reality. Reflection on these features of judging or believing or doing brings us back to our starting point. They're all being undertaken self-consciously means no one could be said just to assert or just believe or just act. Any such undertaking, if self-conscious, must be potentially responsive to the question of why, that is, to reasons. An assertion is such a responsiveness. The latter is not a secondary or even distinct dimension of the former. And it's at least plausible to say that the greater the extent of such potential responsiveness, or said another way, the greater the self-understanding, the freer the activity, the more I can be said to redeem the action as genuinely mine, back it, stand behind it as mine. And there we have the heart of German idealism stated at the outset, the principle that self-consciousness, reason, and freedom are one. At this point, we have to note that Hegel adds his own unusual spin to this trio of abstractions. A proper understanding of the self's relation to itself in thinking, the form of any conceiving and thereby of any concept understood as a moment of conceiving, and thereby any inferential relation, is also the core meaning of what Hegel calls the infinity treated by speculative philosophy, all in con contradistinction to traditional metaphysics, what he calls the domain of Verstand, the understanding, and finitude. Later in the Encyclopedia Logic, Hegel states Kant's point in his own speculative language. What is here called the object of reason, the unconditioned, is nothing but the self-equivalent, das Selbstgleiche. In other words, it is the original identity of the I in thinking. What is here called the object of reason is the original identity of the I in thinking, otherwise bewildering without the path we have just followed. I think Riddle's formulations have given us some hope that we might understand why Hegel equates the object of reason with the, with the original identity of the I in thinking, or why he calls truth self-consciousness. But of course, Hegel's formulations about what he keeps calling the infinite character of this self-relation are quite difficult. He has invoked a self-relation that is something like a circular structure in which the self-self-relation never terminates in a distinct object or determinate posit, and so despite appearances is not dyadic. But in so attending, returns to itself as the thinker of such a thought. It would have to, since the subject is the object it is aware of. The relation is to a self that is the original subject of the relation, a relation or a difference even with such an identity, to insert Hegel's frequent way of framing the issue. This is infinity in the proper sense, Hegel tells us frequently, and as he says in his discussion of being for self, quote, self-consciousness is thus the nearest example of the presence of infinity. 
A finite understanding of this relation would be, for example, a naturalistic one. There has to be something of this thought in Rödel's position. The believer knows of her acts of believing, not by inner perception or inference, but by being the believer. But this identity is not something like the identification of one thing with another, the way a reductionist would identify mental states with brain states, that is, claim there are only brain states, there are no mental states. So occasionally, Rudel must formulate more metaphorically. As before, he says, a subject's knowledge that and why she believes what she does, which she expresses in giving the explanation, is not a separate existence from what it represents. It includes and is included in the reality of which it is knowledge. Well, includes and especially included in a reality of which she has knowledge sound metaphorically an idealist note. What is it for reasons to be included in a reality? But also evinces some aspects of the identity and non-identity language the idealists were so fond of. One can note the problem by comparing this language of including with what he had said before, quote, her believing it and her thought that it is something right to believe are the same reality. Hegel had said that the subject matter of the logic is thinking, Denken, understood as an activity, which means it, thinking, is what he calls the active universal or the self-acting, sich betätigende universal, because the deed or that brought about, he said, is the universal. At the beginning of the logic of the concept, Hegel glosses this activity in a way that also expresses a Kantian thought. That is, he rejects the idea of the judgment as the combination of independent concepts, subjects and predicates, and insists instead that the relation between the determinacy of concepts and their roles in judgment is in effect one of identity. Their determinacy is their role in judging. Discovery of a different role in judging, discovery of a different conceptual content. He has his own way of putting this, but I think the point is clear. He's trying to explain here what he means by saying that the concept as such does not abide within itself without development, calling the concept itself totally active in that it is always distinguishing itself from itself. If you like a contemporary analog, he's denying with these formulations that the fixing of the concept's meaning is something, a Carnapian view, is something we can do independently of what we discover to be the possible roles of the concept in judgment. He has a kind of Quinean view against Carnap, that the change in the role it could play in various judgments as we begin to analyze a concept more fully or look to other dimensions of its use changes the meaning of the concept. No fixity of the meaning of the concept if the play of judgmental interlocution, let's say, is as varied or as widespread as Hegel, as Hegel thinks it is. So he says, the sundering of the concept into the distinction of its moments that is posited by its own activity is the judgment. I hope it's clear that this, you know, anybody reading this for the first time would sound, it would sound like gobbledygook. But he's trying to follow the logic of Kant's definition of judgment as apperceptive and the link that Kant himself formulated between the content of concepts and their role as predicates in possible judgments, as he says. And he's noting the instability of the notion of conceptual content we get once we concede this point. <coughs> the concept of being doesn't mean what it means on first analysis if the concept of being can only be articulated by judgmental specifications that then mean its use in those specifications changes so that our first apprehension of it hadn't particularly well identified the content of the concept. In Kant as well as Hegel, concepts are predicates of possible judgments. Even the concepts or the categories, dependence on which is necessary for any conceptual determination to be possible. This means that concepts cannot be independently grasped as determinate entities. Hegel has the last thing close to a concept realism. Thinking that they could be produces what Hegel is forever calling dead, lifeless, static, untrue concepts. This truth is part of what we are learning in the first logic, the being logic, learning that it's not possible to understand conceptual determinacy this way by assuming that it is and falling into contradiction. And this means that the logic of being can be deeply misleading, as if we are simply entertaining concepts as such, one by one. In trying to understand this claim, we can recall here the passage where Hegel claimed that the gestalt, the form of concepts, was the form of the self, that is, in science, the truth is self-consciousness. Concepts have the form of a self in this sense, are moments of apperceptive predication, always of self-conscious judging. They have this reflective structure, 
Knowledge of their determinate content is also knowledge of the considerations for just such a delimitation. And they are what they are in this reflected way, taken to be, determined to be, necessarily in the interconnected practices of all conceptual determination. This alone will be the source of the claim for what would otherwise be the mysterious logical movement in the greater logic, and through such logical movement, a finely determinate logical order. Judgment is said to be the, quote, determining of the concept through itself, and is said to be, quote, the realization of the concept, for reality denotes in general the entry into existence as determinate being, where concepts are only determinate by virtue of their roles in judgment, the bringing to the un objective unity of apperception in Kant's definition. So a concept like essence, for example, can be said to be delimitable as just that concept by virtue of its possible uses in various contrasts with appearance or by virtue of its negation of the concept being or its role in distinguishing accidental from essential predicates. These are all roles in judgment and thereby tied to judgmental roles in inferences. Any of these uses, though, involves any such claim in a network of justifications, a normative order. The application of any such concept in judgment, since apperceptive, self-consciously applied, must be just thereby responsive to its possible misapplication. And the question of the general contours of its correct use implicates any one notion in the normative proprieties governing many others, hence the course of the movement in the logic. But with this topic of infinity, we are at the very limits now of being able to follow Hegel, at least at my limits. We still need some non-metaphorical sense of how in non-empirical cases, I mean, it's important that they be non-empirical. If the, the sort of engine driving the reformulation of conceptual content is just more information coming from the empirical world over historical time, it would be easy enough to understand how the varieties of what keeps escaping conceptual determination keep forcing tra uh, transformations in even the very content or meaning of a concept. But the science of logic and the phenomenology are not about empirical self-correction. There's another kind of movement at stake in the postulation of these different judgmental roles that can't rely on the same thing. This is what's wrong, by the way, with Brandon's interpretation of Hegel. He takes as his model empirical correction as responsive to, uh, as responsible for the variations in conceptual, conceptual meaning. We still need some non-metaphorical sense of how in non-empirical cases, settling on some determination of conceptual content because necessarily self-conscious, is a settling on at the same time much more than an isolated or punctated grasp of anything. That the self-relation involved in such a full determination in effect thought's determination of its own possibility, the possibility of rendering determinately intelligible at all, should be understood as infinity does not seem very helpful. It might help us understand why Hegel sometimes seems to say that knowing or determining one content would be to know or, determining, or determine everything but that's not very helpful either. It would be reasonable to say that formulated this way, the prospect of understanding the structure of this self-relation in some systematic way, and by hypothesis that would mean understanding the possibility of intelligible knowing and acting, is impossible. And this impossibility represents the failure of German idealism. This is the thesis of by far the greatest dean of German philosophy scholarship in the post-war period, uh, Dieter Henrich. That's his, this is his claim. But Hendrik is essentially a Kantian. So he has some stake in the project of German idealism failing. We could conclude from this either that we have made a wrong turn somewhere and must begin anew, or that the issue itself, or the complex set of issues, self-relation in relation to the world, practical self-knowledge in action that involves no strange inner eye, does not allow a systematic, only an approximate or indirect articulation, perhaps of value only as a weapon against naturalism. This is Henrik's position, and merely approximate is his term. Or we could hope that the problem in formulating this structure stems from the limitations inherent in a kind of formulation, what Hegel calls the formulations of Verstand, the understanding, and that a different conception of the logic of thought, of intelligibility, might be possible and adequate to the infinite self-relation. This is, of course, Hegel's position in the science of logic. Said more simply, understanding Said more simply, understanding this self-relation in thinking and acting is the most important element to understand in understanding ourselves as thinkers and agents. And Hegel, in effect, claims we are captured by a largely empiricist picture of how to achieve this understanding, a picture of consciousness and objects. The phenomenology was supposed to have helped us therapeutically break the hold of this picture. 
In the logic, the one thing required is that we understand, by contrast with this empiricist picture, that thought, the concept, does not acquire content, but gives itself its own content. This is very similar to Rudel's formulation and is the final element we need in understanding the so-called heart of German idealism. That is, we need to begin by realizing that the determination of the conceptual content involved in the thinking of anything at all consists of determinate attempts at predicative spe specification. At the level of abstraction of the logic, the level of meta-conceptual functions that have empirical, scientific, and ethical concepts as their arguments, the role of self-consciousness in the possibility and shape of such an enterprise has a distinct feature. Any such determining is at the same time conscious of such determining in the way specified, just by being the act of determination. But then the determination is implicated in a normative order, the reasons which require or prohibit some such determination, but ultimately the full exposition of which would be needed for a successful determination. In that sense, we have to say that the eyes being itself and its thinking and acting is at the same time it's not being fully or wholly itself. Its reasons under some finite set of assumptions about qualitative predication or essential predication run out. Being itself and not being itself, that is not being able to fulfill the intention resolved to adequately determine content, places me in a state of opposition with myself that Hegel calls a contradiction. Not at all in the formal logical sense, that is, it's something logically false, but in the ordinary sense when we say to someone, I've discovered you're contradicting yourself. It is clear enough what is at stake for Hegel in such a self-determination, and it is clear in another register in Rudel's book. The culmination of the course of the demonstration in the science of logic is the logic of the concept, or the concept of the concept, thought's determination of its own possibility at the highest level of abstraction, about which Hegel says that having reached this realm, we have reached the realm of subjectivity and freedom. Later in the account of the logic of the concept itself, he says that in the concept, therefore, the kingdom of freedom is disclosed. And in the addition to number 31 of the Encyclopedia Logic, he waxes poetic over such logical freedom using a dramatic image to characterize the achievement of such a logic, using his technical term for freedom, Beisigsein, being oneself, or being able to identify myself wholly with what I claim or do, he says, this being with self, Beisigsein, belongs to free thinking, a free voyaging, wherewith nothing under us and nothing over us, in solitude, alone by ourselves, we are purely at home with ourselves. This sets the bar pretty high for a poor commentator. But if these considerations are right, then at least we can have some sense of what stakes we are playing for and what the game is. Thanks for your patience.